Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Joshua Landis, professor of Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Joshua, welcome to the show. Well, it's a pleasure being with you, John. I've been reading you for a long time, and it's nice to be here. Thank you so much. Um, we're going to get into some of the details of the years-long saga of U.S. intervention in Syria. Most listeners will be aware that uh, Syria has been in, mired in a long civil war that the United States has used force there against Islamic militant groups in a bombing campaign that spanned the Trump administration and Obama all the way to Trump. What are the state of things now? Uh, how would you describe the state of things in Syria now? The Assad regime, the competing factions in the country, the fragmentation, the humanitarian status of things. How would you describe that? Well, Syria is in a terrible state economically. Um, I was just talking to a friend in in uh, in Damascus the other day, and he said we're we're living in a stone age again. There's no electricity. People can't use their refrigerators. Um, one friend was telling me about how uh, how they can't go to the butcher shop and get chicken anymore because um, they have to go at a certain time because the butcher is cutting the chickens up and he has to distribute. You get a piece. Few people can afford a whole chicken. And you get, you know, if you want a chicken breast, you order a chicken breast and he chops it up for you, but he distributes it between a certain period of the day. So this is the way people are living. The inflation has crashed the um, currency. And so government employees are making about 30 to $40 a month. Um, pensions have collapsed. Uh, my wife is Syrian and, and her 85-year-old father and mother used to get about $300, $350 a month. Now it's, they, they were joking the other day, they can go to the chicken store and get, get eight chickens with their, um, with their, so everybody depends on the outside and depends on people with relatives who can send them money. But most people, of course, in Syria don't have that and they're living hand to mouth. And, and that's why uh, the economic situation is so bad. Politically, uh, we've got the same old structure that Assad has has uh, presided over, uh, the Assad family has presided over for 50 years. Syria is divided into three major sections. Um, Assad rules most of the people and most of the country, about, about 65% of the country, 65 to 70. The Turks rule a big hunk in Northern Aleppo and Idlib on the Western side of Northern Syria. And the Americans rule another big hunk, uh, about 25% of Syria, that's north of the Euphrates River on the northwest. And that's dominated by the Kurdish forces who are allied with the United States. The forces allied with Turkey are Hayat Tahrir sham which is ruling Idlib. And that's, that's the, the leader of that is Abu Muhammad al-Jolani. And he was the right-hand man of Caliph Baghdadi of ISIS, who was sent to Syria to create a branch of Al-Qaeda. This is when ISIS was still connected to Al-Qaeda. Uh, they had a falling out. He divorced ISIS and uh, announced his obedience to um, Zawahiri in, and, and Al-Qaeda central in Afghanistan. And then he broke away from them and has become increasingly dependent on the Turks and has, you know, clipped his beard and tried to fly right to get off the uh, terrorist designation. 
James Jeffrey, America's special envoy to Syria under Trump, called him and called Idlib a uh, an American asset because they were denying a big hunk of Syria to Assad. Uh, they don't let Iranian forces or pro-Iranian forces into their region. And um, they are protecting about 3 million Syrians, many of whom are um, fighters, opposition fighters, the most, uh, the most Islamist ones, rather than making a, some kind of a, uh, a peace with the regime, which the regime offered to the various militias as it defeated them and moved up north. These are the one. These are the fighters who fled and decided they didn't want to risk it for whatever reason, or they didn't. They couldn't stomach living under the regime. It was too dangerous, and they fled into Idlib province. So, it is a. Um, those are the three major regions: one very Islamist, one Kurdish nationalist, uh, and one Assadist. And and uh, and Syria is very poor in every region. It's uh, deadly poor. Sanctions are biting into it. Yeah, speaking of sanctions, under Biden, Syria policy has been kept rather quiet on the back burner. But as a matter of policy, not much has changed from the previous administration. The policy essentially includes continuing economic sanctions and maintaining the U.S. troop presence. Can you talk a bit about Biden's approach to Syria so far and what it includes? Yes. Uh, you know, President Biden, President Trump, personally wanted to get out of Syria. He called it a sort of a, a sandy wasteland. And uh, he said, why don't they just go back to fighting each other? And and uh, I think Biden would have liked to get out of Syria, but he couldn't do it. It was a bridge too far because he got out of Afghanistan, which was his big effort. And it, it, it hurt him. And I think pulling out of Syria would hurt him uh, too much. It's it's cheap for America to be there relatively. We've got good partners in the Kurds. And so he's put it on autopilot. He doesn't really care about Syria. He's trying to patch up relations with Turkey, with Erdogan, particularly now that Ukraine is demanding uh, some form of Turkish cooperation with the United States and um, with other Arab regimes and Israel. He's trying to keep them all. Syria is really subordinate as it has been in the past, to U.S. relations with much more important powers in the Middle East. Syria has never been very important to the United States, and that's the way it is under Biden. And so long as Americans are not killed there, American troops that are present in two different regions uh, are not killed, he can probably uh, kick that can down the road. It's uh, battling ISIS is the number one American concern, according to um, the policy principles who are speaking out on this. They're trying to downplay the anti-Iran part of it, and they're trying to downplay um, really any notion that we can fix Syria. So they're stressing the ISIS again. But of course, we are there to counter Iran. We are there to counter Russia. And, um, and we are still putting pressure on Assad to have a, um, a political solution. That's the, that's the formula based on UN Resolution 2254, which calls for a political transition in Syria and really the, the ouster of Assad through elections overseen by the UN and so forth. So that's, that continues to be America's um, rhetorical stand, even though I think nobody believes that it's possible anymore. 
So in other words, the stated goal of the sanctions is to pressure the Assad regime to um, allow elections that would uh, displace Assad from power. Um, in 2020, you wrote in Foreign Affairs that the Trump administration designed the sanctions it has now imposed on Syria to make reconstruction impossible. And I, I believe I understand not much has changed there. Uh, can you explain that a little bit? Yes, the, 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 the sanctions are designed particularly to target energy and electricity and so forth and, and reconstruction. So it's to keep neighboring Arab countries, Turkey and so forth, to reconcile with Syria and begin to invest in Syria because Syria is dirt cheap right now. Uh, you can buy almost anything and uh, for bargain basement prices. People would be jumping into Syria. Even though it's extremely risky, the risk takers would be jumping in with investments because you can buy land, you can buy houses and so forth for very little money. Um, but Washington is trying to restrain that because it's putting pressure on Assad uh, to keep him weak in order to theoretically force him into negotiations with the Syrian opposition that would lead to him departing and some kind of power sharing arrangement that would keep the Syrian army integral so that it could fight ISIS and theoretically Al-Qaeda. Um, but this is this is not going to happen. Uh, it's, it's unlikely to happen. But sanctions are uh, quite popular with the Syrian opposition because it's really their only hope of, uh, it's their only hope that, that remains and it keeps America and the neighbors focused on uh, on Syria. And it's important to, to Israel, I think, as well, who has which has been been bombing Syria almost on a weekly basis uh, in order to degrade any attempt by Assad or the Iranians to build a second front near the Golan Heights uh, against that could be used to send rockets into Israel, because we have to remember that um, for Iran, Syria is principally important because it's a deterrent. They see it as a national, uh, as defending the homeland, their connection with Syria, because by having Hezbollah in southern Lebanon with missiles and possibly missiles in Syria, they believe that they can deter Israel from bombing Iran's nuclear um, nuclear sites. And so this is this is the game that's being played. Israel's trying to keep those deterred so it doesn't have the missiles in, in place and can't really hurt Israel. And Syria and Iran are desperately trying to build those things up. And, and sanctions are an important part of keeping Syria very weak and unable to afford to reconstruct. So you mentioned that the presence of US troops is um, in, in large part about these broader geopolitical objectives and keeping allies happy and sort of deterring adversaries in Syria. But what exactly are U.S. troops doing there? I recall at the end of the Trump administration, there was some um, pressure from the president to withdraw from Syria, and they somehow placated uh, him by saying um, the troops left in Syria would be guarding oil fields. Uh, what What is it that they're up to there? Well, if we look at if we look at what was stated under the Trump administration by the special envoy, James Jeffrey, who was very articulate on describing America's plan, he said, first, they're to bring justice to punish Assad 
who's responsible for bloody suppression of Syrian uprising, to stop Assad's war machine, and then to implement UN Resolution 2254, which we've already spoke about, um, and also to uh, pressure Iran and Russia. And ultimately, he said, we're going to turn this into a quagmire. He said, my job is to turn Syria into a quagmire for Iran and Russia. So keep it very poor. And some of the American troops are in Tunf. Tunf is a desert village on the border between Iraq and Syria, where the main highway that goes from Damascus to Baghdad uh, runs through Tunf. So by having a few hundred American troops there, ostensibly to fight ISIS, but ISIS is not near that area. They haven't fought ISIS uh, in the past few years, but they do block the major highway. And by blocking the highway, there's no trade, very limited trade between Iraq and Syria. And in theory, Iranian arms couldn't be sent along that highway. They could still be sent through the north, where Syria does have another road, but it's more cumbersome. But that's an indication of the attempt to block trade, strangle Syria economically, and keep Iran out. And that's another important geostrategic factor that the United States is doing. And of course, in the north, where America has most of its troops, close to 2,000, um, we're helping the Kurds. And this is the big dilemma that the United States has gotten itself into, because originally this policy of helping the Kurds was to destroy ISIS and to pin back Assad, to deny him territory. And the, the Northeast, the Kurdish-dominated region in Syria is very valuable. It's valuable because it has most of Syria's oil, most of its good agriculture along the Euphrates River and the Kabul River, and it has uh, control of water. So by denying those three elements to Damascus, this adds to the sanctions and the economic policy of, of strangulation. So, but it's also hard to get out because the moment America leaves and it's imposed a no-fly zone over Northern Syria there, the Syrians will retake it because without an air force, the Kurds are sitting ducks, even if though they have a good militia that's armed by the United States. And also Turkey will smash them because this, the Syrian democratic forces, as they're called by the United States, are dominated by Kurds who are connected to the PKK, the, the Turkish Workers' Party that, that Erdogan considers a terrorist organization and accuses of wanting to take Eastern Turkey to incorporate it into a, a Kurdish, a Kurdistan, a Kurdish state along with Northern Syria. So the Kurds are sitting ducks. The moment America withdraws its air power, uh, they're going to be smashed both by the Assad military and by Turkey's military. There'll be a mad rush to grab territory up there. Uh, so that's a little bit like a, it's, it's a mini Afghanistan, and it's going to be difficult for any president to let it go. Of course, it's already America's being questioned, why are we there? What are we really doing? Because our object is to fight ISIS. But by maintaining a division of Syria between these three sectors, we're helping ISIS. Because ISIS can play between these three inimical regions. There isn't a central government and a central army. And ultimately, I think it's going to make sense for the United States to have Assad's government rule over this part of Syria because um, 
it'll placate the Turks. It will also be the best way to fight ISIS in the long run is to have a strengthened a, a, a Syrian army that's strong enough the way it did under um, under President Assad previously, which was an unhappy trade-off because you have dictatorship and you're letting this dictator rule Syria, but he does provide security. And that's the dilemma that we discovered in Iraq. You destroy Saddam Hussein and his 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 bad tyrannical government, but you get uh, Al Qaeda and ISIS dominating, um, and so you you have to choose which you want. And and ultimately, it's going to make sense for America to withdraw. And I believe America will withdraw, not under this administration because it's too much, but perhaps under the next or the one after that. We'll see how long they can kick the can down the road. But America isn't making big uh, gains out of uh, staying in this part of Syria anymore because it's not going to, one, help destroy ISIS uh, ultimately, and two, it will not um, cause regime change in Damascus. Yeah, this dilemma that you talk about uh, between uh, choosing the Assad regime and Islamic uh, militants and rebel groups uh, choosing both of them as enemies uh, and therefore kind of working against our own objectives in many ways. So let's go back. I mean, there was, there was a time back in the Obama administration when the United States was actively funding and arming and training Syrian rebel groups, largely through the CIA. And in the mix of that mess of policy and execution, much of that aid benefited the very groups whose presence in Syria the White House to this day cites as a dangerous threat to the US that justifies the use of force in Syria. So um, can you talk a bit about some of the thinking and the calculations that went into our earlier interventions in Syria and what kind of consequences they had? Yes, I, you know, I think there are sort of three phases to American policy, if I can simplify it, over the Obama and Trump years. And that was in the beginning, when the uprising started in March of 2011, Everybody thought, okay, this regime has got a few months at at the most. It's an it's a it's a disliked regime. There's wide, going to be widespread demonstrations as there were pretty rapidly uh, against the regime. Everybody in Syria wanted reform of some kind. Once the bullets started flying, though, Syrians divided, um, and many Syrians did not want a military takeover by rebel forces, and particularly the minorities, but also the Sunni. Arab upper classes who had a lot to lose if um, sort of rural rebels took over the cities, would steal their cars, their apartments, and everything they owned. And, and they did. I mean, they, they stripped in Aleppo where the rebels conquered. They stripped every factory down to the, you know, took the wires out of the walls and everything. So people lost all their money. And this caused the uh, middle and upper middle classes to to really sit on the fence, the Sunni Arabs, but the minorities were terrified that the rebels would um, drive them out of Syria and ethnically cleanse them, particularly the Alawites who had been so compromised in the Assad, Assad regime. So that was the that was the sort of how things evolved on the ground in Syria. But for America, Obama thought in the first months that Assad would fall. And so he got on the right side of this. Uh, Secretary Clinton immediately began to form what was called Friends of Syria and get over 100 countries to back the Syrian opposition. And ultimately, in 2011, 
President Obama said Assad has to step aside and and backed some kind of democratic reform. And this was a fateful decision, even though the next sentence in his formulation was that America's not going to do it. Nobody listened to that second sentence. And this fired up the opposition groups who believed that if they could um, make gains, sort of the way that Ukraine has made gains, they would gain the love and the backing of the Western countries, who all of whom disliked Assad intensely and saw this as a ideal moment to get Iran out, get Russia out, and to bring Syria into a Western orbit and Saudi orbit and possibly make peace with Israel and so forth. So it there were some big you know, eyes bulging in Washington at seeing this opportunity. Within a year, things began to change. And that was because Al-Qaeda began to play an important role. Um, jihadists of all kinds, Islamist, more radical groups were clearly dominant on the ground already by 2012. And the FSA, the Free Syrian Army, and at first we didn't know what the Free Syrian Army was because there were 1,500 militias by the two, end of 2012 that had popped up, called themselves this brigade or that brigade, and were putting up videos of killing Syrian soldiers in order to raise money in Saudi Arabia, the Gulf, and other places. So it was a scramble, a free market of militias, all looking to get money. And by being Islamist, was a good way to get more money from the Gulf countries. So very quickly, the architecture of the Syrian opposition became Islamist, radical, and began to spook America. And uh, the Free Syrian Army groups that were supposed to be moderate, nobody would name them because they were sort of a joke. And, and the radicals were allowing the Free Syrian Army militias to go into Turkey, go into Jordan, get arms, get training from the United States and from other Gulf Arab countries, and then bring that training in. And they would turn them into, they would use them to get arms, get some of that money, and um, get help on the battlefront by these militias cooperating with them to fight Assad. So the United States was spooked. And this led to, by 2013, beginning of 2013, you already had, for example, Mike Morrell, the number two guy in the CIA, giving an interview on 60 Minutes. And he said, um, he said, we don't want to see this Syrian army destroyed. That would be a big mistake because already Al-Qaeda groups I, uh, and the more radical Islamists are dominating the scene. And we don't want them to come to power. So we need the Syrian army to remain integral so that once Assad leaves, you see the idea was the America would arm the radicals or arm this, the, they, America didn't arm the radicals. They armed these free Syrian armies, but the radical groups were taking those arms once they got into Syria from them or making alliances and so forth. And we need to put pressure on the Syrian army. So the Syrian army generals sit down with America, come to America and ask for a deal. At which point America would demand the army to send Assad away and overturn the Assad family in order to save itself. And then America could use the army, in theory, to defeat 
a burgeoning ISIS and Al Qaeda. That was that was the way Mike Morell described it, and his director, John Brennan, in two thousand early two thousand fifteen March two thousand fifteen, repeated the same thing, and said that. Um, said that the United States does not want to see a chaotic collapse of the Syrian regime as it could open the way to Islamist extremists taking power. So this was the dilemma that America was trying to get both. They wanted to get rid of Assad by arming the opposition enough to weaken the Syrian and terrify the Syrian army so that they would come to America. But what happened is that Assad went to Russia, of course. And we have a recording uh, that was taken on an Apple phone of John Kerry, by, uh, recording by Syrian opposition members when he was addressing them. And he said, look, uh, we thought that as ISIS approached Damascus, Assad would come to America and make a deal. But he went to Russia as if that was a surprise. And Russia jumped in. And I think Russia jumps in in the fall of 2015, and Russia has been listening to John Brennan, the head of the CIA, and others say we don't want Assad to fall. So they knew that when they entered in, they hoped that they could be partners with America in destroying ISIS and supporting Assad. And that's the way John Kerry, I think, ultimately saw it and others saw it, is they said, you know, we don't want Russia here, but, you know, Assad was about to fall. ISIS could have taken Damascus, and that would have been a disaster. So we have to team up with Russia. And there became a division of, of power, a division of labor. The United States was going to destroy ISIS by teaming up with the Kurds and, sort of, in a sense, firing up Kurdish nationalism. And America dumped the Syrian opposition and switched horses to the Kurdish opposition, who wanted to have uh, independence or quasi independence in the Northeast. ISIS was driving those Kurds into Turkey and killing them right and left. So the Kurds were ideal partners because they they saw ISIS as their main uh, as their main enemy, and they were willing to, to 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 arm up with the Americans, destroy ISIS, take that whole northeast region which they hoped to turn into their own homeland, and they could get arms and support against Turkey and Damascus. And they saw this as sort of the this is their moment. Even though America wouldn't say we support Kurdish nationalism, they understood if we can make this work for us, perhaps we can get the foundations for a Kurdish independence or autonomy. This could be much better than living under Assad or Turkey. So the Kurds were on board and the, the division of labor for, for Russia then was to support Assad. And Russia went after all the other opposition groups and began to bomb them. And so U.S. was bombing ISIS, Russia was bombing all the other militias. And in a sense, there was a tacit alliance, as there was a tacit alliance in Iraq between the United States and Iran to kill ISIS. And so the Assad regime survived because of this and got support for, directly from Russia, but indirectly from the United States, which, which had uh, dropped the Arab opposition and was supporting the Kurds to destroy ISIS, which was the major threat to Assad at the time. And so that was a completely new phase of dumping the Sunni Arab opposition, supporting the Kurds. And that leads us to where we are today, is that 
America's back in the Kurdish opposition. It has, it looks with a jaundiced eye at the Turkish backed Arab Sunni rebel enclave in northern Aleppo and Idlib. Uh, it doesn't know what to do about that because it doesn't want to see those 3 million people driven into Turkey or Europe and have more refugees. There's a humanitarian disaster there if, if Assad takes it over. Um, but also it denies, keeps Assad weak and it keeps Turkey happy. And America has to manage this very difficult relationship with Turkey now because America is helping their ISIS, if you will, the Kurds, the PKK. And so Turkey is just furious at the United States. That's why it's cottoned up to Russia. And it's it's been very, very, at times, harsh in its language against the United States. But America, in a sense, lets Turkey have that other half of northern Syria and some parts of the Kurdish region where it's got a, a border zone that it's a buffer zone that it's been moving into under Trump. And that has placated the the Turks enough. But Turkey and Assad are both sitting there waiting for America to withdraw because they know that America will withdraw someday. And then there's going to be, you know, real competition between the two over how do they sort, you know, how do they divide that part of northern Syria up? Yeah. So that's where America and America would like to get out, I think. But there still is this lingering problem of an ISIS um, uh, terrorism, which is which has been very lively in the last few months, especially since Ukraine, ISIS has been attacking both in Syria and in Iraq on these, you know, little terrorist attacks, blowing things up, assassinating people on motorcycles, that kind of thing. And uh, it's 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 not dead, although it's nothing like it used to be. Somewhere around the middle of Obama's tenure, as he was deciding what to do about supporting or not supporting these uh, Syrian rebels, he commissioned an internal CIA study, still classified, I think reviewing America's long history of arming insurgencies and civil wars abroad. Um, and according to the New York Times reporting of it, the study concluded that these efforts really almost never work. Um, and, and that's somewhat consistent, I think, with what I know about the political science literature on this, which is that when external actors decide to support various sides in a civil war, it tends to prolong and even exacerbate the conflict. Um, and in this case, you had extremists mucking up our strategy and so on. So it looks like we had a number of reasons not to get involved, and we did anyways. How do you explain this apparent knee-jerk policy reaction to act, to do something, even if we have good reason to think it won't produce desirable results? Well, you know, we're stuck in this leadership, the indispensable nation leadership. Americans want Washington to lead. It is a now, on the one hand, Americans don't want America to spend money abroad and be in forever wars. On the other hand, they like being a superpower and they like being the leaders of the world. And so Americans are very, I think, uh, give mixed messages to Washington all the time. Secondly, um, President Obama, I think, very, felt very weak when it came to foreign policy. It was not his expertise. And he had this big behemoth you know, what's called the blob sometimes by by Washington insiders, this, this big foreign policy establishment, Defense Department, State Department, all the others, contractors, military, industrial complex, if you will. And, and many people were saying, oh, we've got to get rid of Assad. We've got to help the Kurds. We've got to, you know, democracy promotion, all these things. 
And it was very difficult for President Obama to say no. And he got lulled into it because he thought Assad was going to fall and that there really wasn't much that America needed to do so he could stay out and be on the right side of history by just making these rhetorical formulations like Assad has to step aside, but America won't do it. Very quickly, it turned into a very brutal civil war and the opposition needed America. Not unlike Ukraine today, of course, it's different because America was on the side of the insurgency in Syria. In Ukraine, it's on the side of Zelensky and the established Ukrainian government. So we're on the side of the angels in Ukraine. In, in, in Syria, according to international law, we were on the side of the terrorists. According to democracy promotion in America's, you know, we were on the side of the angels because the, the Syrian opposition were supposed to be angels and Assad was the tyrant. But very quickly, uh, American policymakers realized that that wasn't the case and that the Syrian opposition was not angels. So Obama got sucked into it. And then we got to that famous red line, 2013, where Assad was getting more and more desperate and he used chemical weapons thinking that this would help him win and that it would save his own soldiers because his soldiers were getting killed at a rapid clip and the army was weakening. And he thought, you know, I need to use everything I have. I, I suppose it was a little bit like the United States using the atom bomb in Japan. My, my father was on an aircraft carrier in the Pacific slated to go and invade Japan. He didn't want to die. It, it, was, it was considered that hundreds of thousands of Americans were going to die. So using the atom bomb was a good thing. And, and my father till his dying day was a you know, lefty peacenik always thought that using the atom bomb was good because it saved his life. So if you're looking at it from your own personal point of view, using weapons of mass destruction for the Syrian generals was the smart thing to do. Of course, it brought international pressure down. And uh, and it was, you know, the, the, the inhumanity of these poor people struggling in the photos. It was, a, you know, it was a terrible thing. And light shone on Obama to do something. And this is at the same time that Mike Morell is saying we can't have the Syrian army collapse because Al-Qaeda and ISIS are going to take over. So Obama doesn't know what to do. The Republican Party wasn't going to support it. They voted against it in Congress. Um, the British had said, we are not going to do it. So it was all up to him and his one decision. Are we going to destroy the Syrian army and bomb these things and really give the opposition the opportunity to take over Damascus. That's what the opposition was asking for. And he said, no, we can't do it. What we can do is get rid of the weapons of mass destruction. And Russia offered him a way out, an elegant way out, at least what he thought. And he continues to say that was the best thing he did in Syria, is we got this out so that if ISIS or Al-Qaeda won, they wouldn't have all these chemical weapons, because that was the danger. So Obama's you know, of course, he was pounded by the Syrian opposition and, op and, and people who wanted to see a change of regime in Syria uh, from one end of uh, uh, the international community to the other because he, he didn't help the Syrian opposition who got crushed brutally. And Assad remains in power today. And, and that was the, you know, that was the, the dilemma he was on. And American, you know, to come back to your original question was about pumping in arms to these insurgencies doesn't... Um, end up with the results that you want in a democratic regime at the end. We know that. But I think ineluctably, he was, his hand was forced by the cruelty of the Assad regime 
by the international community that was demanding that he support democracy, support the Syrian opposition. Um, he had started this ball rolling in that direction himself. And, and Secretary of State Clinton had gotten together this giant coalition, had worked on both Turkey and Saudi to bring them in there to, to, to support the rebels. So he couldn't back out. And he was very reluctant, but he got sucked in. And it, it's very hard you know, to to back out once you start on this. And he never could foresee what a, you know, what a horrible prolonged civil war was going to turn into. But by throwing in arms, we do know that the more international actors get involved in these civil wars, the longer and more protracted they become, the more people get killed, the more human rights violations. And it doesn't, but it weakens the country. And Syria is extremely weak today. And that benefits um, some of our allies in the region, and it benefits the United States. I think people see it. Uh, you know, I'll never forget one of the early meetings I went to in Washington. There were State Department and DOD people there, and the State Department people were focused on human rights and um, the the human rights aspect. And several of the DOD people said, "Hey, you know, why don't we just build a stadium around this and?" Uh, and buy tickets and watch them fight it out. And, and we can just weaken them all. And there was, so already very early on in, uh, you know, 2011, there were those competing elements in Washington of let's just weaken this guy. He's a prick. And, uh, and, uh, and the opposition is not going to be much better. Let him slug it out. And so I, I don't think that was the prevailing view at the time, but I do think that that's the way things worked out. And, uh, and, um, yeah, and, and it got turned into a quagmire and ultimately it ended up with our envoys saying, you know, my job is to turn Syria into a quagmire for Russia and Iran. And it is one, it is a quagmire for them. Presumably the things Americans should want most for Syria is, you know, stability for the conflict to subside for the problem of Islamic militants not to be a, a major one there, uh, and to ease the humanitarian suffering. What's the most realistic path forward if we want to manifest those kinds of results? You're absolutely right. And America does talk about stability, but of course, stability for America is a political solution that gets rid of Assad. So there's still, you know, rhetorically, stability for America means a pro-Western stability that would get Iran and Russia out of the region. Um, if we look at it from a different point of view, the point of view of Assad, Hezbollah, Iran, and the Shiites in Iraq, what would they like? What does stability for them mean? You know, this is the first time in history, in modern history, since these countries were created, that there are friendly relations between all of these states, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Iran. In the past, there's been horrible enmity between Iraq and Assad, for example, um, between Iran and Iraq. Today, all those regimes, all those governments are friendly, and they would like to rebuild by building oil pipelines that go straight from Iran right through Iraq, through the desert, to the Mediterranean. That's the most elegant way to get their oil out to Europe, for example, um, to compete with Russian oil 
and supply Europe with both Iraqi and Iranian oil, also to support to supply Syria and Lebanon and other countries with oil in the region. Build roads across, big highways. Those highways are all blocked now. You know, U.S. troops are in Tunf. Get the communications working. Syria is geographically at the very center heart of the Middle East. All the roads between Turkey and Saudi Arabia, pipelines from Saudi to Europe, all that kind of stuff has to go through Syria. And so Syria wants to become, and that was Assad's vision before the war started, it was what he called his five seas plan to connect the five seas, the Mediterranean, the Caspian, the Black Sea, uh, Indian Ocean, and so forth, the Red Sea together, and be the entrepot hub trading nexus. Now, that's what he would like to do. But that's, of course, exactly what America cannot allow him and will not allow him to do. That's why we've broken the country up to three. We're supporting this, 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 the sanctions, putting troops on the borders to try to keep Iran out. And we're trying to keep Lebanon away. So the United States is, and Israel, you know, that, that article in the Wall Street Journal just a little while ago about Israel scuttling 10 Iranian tankers trying to deliver oil so that the electricity can come back on Syria. They've been scuttled in the Mediterranean and other places by Israel trying to stop any energy getting in there. So, and that's backed by the United States. So this is, the United States, Iran, Russia are in diametrically opposed positions. So stability and economic growth for the governments of that region means trade, oil, pipelines, roads. Stability and virtuous foreign policy or you know the goodness of American foreign interests dictate that there not be roads, there not be pipelines, there not be a free flow of money, uh, banking, any investment between those four countries because they're enemy countries and we want to turn them into a quagmire. And that's where the Syrian people and the Iraqi people and the Lebanese people are getting, um, are being starved to death as a result, because that geopolitical struggle, the war in Syria and Iraq and Lebanon is not over. It's just turned to different means, um, primarily economic, but also trade and, you know, with troops and uh, proxy armies and so forth. But it's still going on. And that battle means that the people of the region uh, have no hope. And they're all thinking, how do I get out of here? This place is dead. Uh, and it's never going to come back. And, 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 it, and it's hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel today. And the Ukraine battle has only maximize that battle because any compromise that we had been going to make with Iran or Russia on Syria, we can't do it today because it would be giving Russia a Benny. It'd be helping Russia because it wouldn't be this quagmire hanging around this neck. Uh, they wouldn't have to invest money and keep troops and do stuff like that there. So it's, it remains a battleground today. And it's very hard to see how, uh, you know, where the light is at the end of this tunnel for the Syrian people. They, they will rebuild, you know, investment's going to get back in there. And we already see countries like the United Arab Emirates, 
they're talking about bringing Syria back into the Arab League. Even some Israelis, I've been talking to a number of people who had been in the National Security Council, are saying, you know, th- this policy that we're pursuing is is not a good policy because it's going to lead to radicalization down the road. ISIS is going to come back. Keep, you can't keep a, people starving. Um, and the only way to get Iran out, because we're not going to overthrow Assad, is by offering Assad investment, Saudi investment, um, and to integrate back into the Arab world. Because then he can get some breathing space from Iran. He can put a little distance himself between him and Iran. He's never going to give up Iran. But he, he could revert to what his father did, which is to play Saudi off against Iran and welcome Saudi investment in Syria, in Lebanon. He allowed Lebanon to be sort of a Saudi uh, satrap in a way. I mean, they shared it. There was a convivial sharing that fell apart eventually, but it lasted for decades under Hariri. And and that's what I think many people in the Gulf and many Israelis are beginning to see is necessary, that we're not going to get rid of Iran. We have to live with this new security architecture. And the, the best thing we can do is try to woo Assad away from being so so dependent on Iran and Russia. And the only way to do that is reduce sanctions and let Gulfies, who've got tons of oil money now, buy up Syria and invest and rebuild. And that will bring people away from Iran and, and away from Turkey. And Saudi looks at both those powers as sort of eating into the Arab Middle East and, uh, and feels threatened. The Gulf don't like it. They want the Arab world to stand on its own two feet and to be able to push back Iran and Turkey, who've become the dominant powers fighting over influence in the Middle East. And, you know, they don't like Iran being there, but they also don't like Turkey being there. So, you know, that's the hope, I think, for Syrians, Iraqis, and Lebanese on the ground, that rather than the great powers and regional powers fighting militarily over Syria and Iraq and Lebanon, they will begin to vie with each other with money and investment. And that would be, that's the hope. Joshua Landis, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today. It's a real pleasure. It's good to be with you on this excellent podcast. Thank you. 